I'm Judy Moore, and you are tuned in to the Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley podcast. Hello, Judy. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today. You know, it's we saw we got to re see each other at a conference in Arizona just recently at Pet Professional Guild, and then before that, we were with Pets for Vets. So I think it's been like probably almost ten years that we have been in knowing of each other, but we are on different sides of the continent. Judy's in Maine and I'm in California. So we don't get to see each other very often, but so this is a great way for us to be able to reconnect and talk about our passion, which happens to be dogs and dogs that are excitable. And Judy's going to talk today a lot about high arousal. She works with a lot of shepherds and Malinois and those high arousal dogs. So um, we're going to talk about high arousal today. So maybe some of the things we talk about will resonate with you with your dog or someone you know, so you can get a little information on how to help your dog that gets highly aroused. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? Because there's so many questions about what is exactly, you know, um, high arousal. Like, Judy, tell us a little bit about, um, is it genetic? Is it learned? Is it, what is it? And how, how do dogs become highly aroused? Well, thanks for having me here, Shannon. It was great to see you at the PPG conference and reconnect. So that was a lot of fun. So yes, when I talk about arousal, I'm referring to the degree of activation or inhibition within the dog's nervous system. We're actually talking about that psychological response, which is that mental response, that emotional response. And you know, with all of us, when we have an emotional response, that can be like, whoa, I'm worried about that. Or it can be um, wait, I want to, I want more of that. And they become activated and want to go at it. So we talk about these big bucket terms of activation versus inhibition. Inhibition is kind of like that passive arousal. There's really a lot more in the middle. So I think this will be fun to break this down a little bit for the audience. When you ask the question, great question, is arousal genetic? Well, really it's both. We know that when we assess puppies, whether it's six, seven, eight weeks of age, that we know this puppy comes with a blueprint. And what we're doing in an assessment, we're asking the puppy, are you a passive puppy and you're worried about things in this environment because we place them in an environment they've never been in. So if we have that puppy who's showing passive nature, we wanna try and put that passive dog with the right person who can support that dog. If we have that puppy that becomes activated and wants to go with everything, and maybe you just gently put your hand on that puppy and you toss the toy and it redirects at eight weeks and bites you, like I wanna to get to that, we know that that dog becomes activated when something's important. So when we think about that genetic blueprint, we want to put those puppies in the right homes so that the human knows what they're getting and knows what skills to focus on. So it is both. It is genetics, but you take those puppies and you put them in a home and depending on the skill of the handler, that arousal can change. That arousal and excitement to get to something, something might turn to frustration. It might turn to aggression. So it absolutely is both genetics and learned behaviors. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and just like so many things, you know, sometimes we need to have different interventions and handling these animals in different ways and these dogs than you would just any other, any other dog. So if someone gets one of these highly aroused dogs, whether it was intentional or they just thought the dog was cute and ended up with a high energy Malinois shepherd or border collie or um, any of those breeds that tend to be more on the high arousal side. Um, what can they do if they have a dog that they realize, oh my gosh, this is an overly aroused dog and I'm getting nipped all the time. I'm getting mauled all the time. They're jumping on me. 
frantically, what are some things that people could do? So the first thing I think about is everybody says when you get a puppy, socialize them. Well, if you have that puppy who becomes activated and is jumping at the leash at six months of age, trying to get to everything, you really need to have a plan. Because remember, behaviors that are practiced become habits. So we need to have a plan of how we're going to socialize. I'm not a big fan of taking a puppy and walking downtown Boston. If the activated puppy is overstimulated and, and lunging at things and maybe vocalization comes out and barking, you're creating unwanted habits. So we have to think about purposeful socialization where that puppy can stay in its think and learn zone. Maybe you get it out of the car, you go into the grass and there's a park in front of us and you just stop. If you're seeing puppy at you know, six months of age becoming highly activated, we need to rethink how we're going to socialize this puppy, right? Because mm -hmm. again, we don't want him to practice the unwanted behavior. You're going to remove that puppy from any situation where you're seeing overactivation, whether it's overstimulated by a noise in the area, maybe it's trucks going by, maybe it's cars going by. And we hear that a lot, right? We hear dogs lunging at cars. Yes. We don't want puppies to practice that behavior. So we need to slow down and create purposeful socialization so the dog can think and learn. And we really want to desensitize these puppies who are highly sensitive to their environment, whether it's visually sensitive or auditory sensitive. Mm -hmm. We need to slow that down so that we're desensitizing them and not sensitizing them and, and creating you know, behaviors. So getting them out of the way, getting them out of the setting where they're showing that behavior is the first step. And then working with a professional to slowly desensitize them. That is such, you know, I was just thinking in my, as you were saying that there's such a spectrum to behavior. So you can have, and what you're saying for these highly aroused, overly aroused that are on one side of the spectrum is really the same thing as you would do with the puppy who's scared to death to walk down the street on downtown Boston, you know, but those people recognize that more as, oh my gosh, my dog's afraid of these because they're shutting down, they're freezing, they're in flight. But sometimes people label the over arousal side at the other side of the spectrum as, oh, he's just excited. He just wants to play. He just, you know, oh, you know, and they, or he's just a teenager or he's just a puppy. And they try to use those excuses because they don't recognize that that is still a level of over, you know, it's, a, it's just the exact opposite of the dog that won't move, but they're still, you're overstimulating both of those dogs. They're just responses different. That, yeah, that's a valid point. And I, I think it's worthy to note that when you have that eight month old, nine month old, that adolescent that just has to bark and lunge at all dogs and it's frustrated. Sometimes what I'll do in that case is I will give them what the dog wants. If I know the dog is really social and super frustrated and he can't think and learn and they're like 20 yards away, I will go ahead and let that dog vocalizing, bring him up, let him smell the dog, a really well-balanced dog, give him what he wants. And now he's like, cool, I just want to be this near dog. I got to smell him. This is awesome. Now can you come, now can you call this highly activated dog, sit, wait, go say hi, sit, wait, go say hi, and gradually meet with the same dog. But let's not frustrate this persistent dog that's highly activated. If he's just frustrated, let's flip it, give him what he wants. This is Gene Donaldson program, kind of turn mm -hmm. it or, you know, back chain it. Yeah. Let him greet the dog because you know, he's not going to sit and wait because he's right. He's, so let him just greet the dog. He's pulling you. I know I, we're going to fix all that, but let him get what he wants. The arousal comes down. Now, can you sit, wait, go say hi 20 times on the walk? And it's a, it's just a nicer way to not frustrate the animal. And when you're doing that with a balanced dog who can handle a frust uh, highly aroused, you wouldn't want to just do this just in case anybody's like, oh, that's a great idea. This doesn't mean every person you see on a walk, you just randomly let your dog go run up to right. their face. This is a planned, controlled scenario. It's a dog that you can handle 
a high aroused couple coming at their face because not all can and practicing. But then what you're actually doing is building a little bit of resilience in there too and really building on, okay, can you wait a second before you go to see that dog and maybe two seconds before you go see that dog? And instead of using a treat, greeting that dog is the reward, but they have to start learning to wait a little longer before they get the reward. Correct. Yep. Breaking it down for them so they can think and learn. And so do you see that you can build resilience in these highly aroused dogs? I do. I do think it. And I, and I think when I talk about resilience for people, I'm talking about the ability to recover from a startling event, right? So how resilient is your dog? And for those of you listening, if you know that your dog needs repeated exposure to the same person before they can trust them, or you've had repeated exposure to the agility room before the dog could actually do anything, that tells you that your dog has slow resilience. It's slow to recover from a startling event. It just means that your training is going to take a little bit longer than somebody whose dog um, meets somebody and within 10 seconds is their best friend. Mm -hmm. So everybody's resilience is a little bit different. So if you have that dog who's low resilience and it does need time, you just want to make sure that you're setting that dog up for success and you're not asking too much of it because there is that fine line of pushing that dog. Yes. once, Once the resilience uh, starts to come in new places and then you start to add on it's a lovely for our trainers to be able to watch a dog become more resilient with mm-hmm. a person with a dog with it with a different setting it's it's good resilience is just such an important thing it's it's my new one of my little passions of things of you know being resilient in life and being resilient in scary things and really looking at how resilience really you know does help and that's where like a safe puppy socialization class. Like I'm, I'm thinking I last night I had a class and there was a really fearful little cattle dog who's been hiding. And I just, you know, kept it. So a baby gate up or a X pen up. So when it was playtime, the other puppies couldn't just come overly greet her. Right. She was allowed to, they could sniff through the X pen. Cause, and last night we didn't even need the X pen and she came out and like, now she didn't play like all the other ones, but they got to learn not to, approach a dog who's a little skeptical and the puppy got to learn that she could have those boundaries a little bit with it. So, you know, teaching this resilience is just so important. It's important for us as humans, yes. but it's also, you know, important for our animals because the world is a hard place and we have to start learning how to not let ourselves get overstimulated, over aroused, or so understimulated that we like, we shut down. So it's that balance. It is a balance. It's that um, that balance of trying to embrace the discomfort for personal growth. And I could be talking about humans or dogs. Exactly. So I know that you like to talk about the science about arousal. So do you want to share a little bit about the Yerkes and Dodson science? Yeah, Yerkes and Dodson did this research project. And what they did was they used rats and they put the rats in the maze and they applied a small or a low level shock to the rats. And what they learned was a mild shock created better focus and the rats actually went through the maze faster to get to the reward. So the mild shock worked as far as getting them to work faster. When they increased the shock, it had the opposite effect. The the rats arousal went to that frantic system and their gross motor skills became chaotic because it was matching their emotional state, which they got into that fight or flight. Many of them took flight So what they learned was too much shock 
created chaotic behavior and the animals could not get to the food. Even though they'd been through there before and they knew the path, they could not function. So what we have to understand is if we're putting a dog in a situation where there's too much pressure or too much stimulation and the arousal goes up, the animal can't think and learn. Mm -hmm. So it's our job as the human to make sure that if the animal is walking flat-footed and purposeful and he looks like he's got his mouth open and he's breathing at a nice rhythm, everything is just do to do to do, that dog is recovering and in a good state of arousal. But as soon as its foot pattern starts to get chaotic, if you've ever walked a dog, it doesn't walk a straight line in front of you. It's chaotic, left and right, left and right, looking left and right. That is a beginning sign that that animal is not mm -hmm. adjusting well to that environment. And you mm -hmm. need to remove that dog from that setting. And it's true. I mean, and now there's so much more um, science, even in humans, about chronic stress. And, you know, there's that analogy of the frog that's in a, you know, cold water in a pot, just sitting in cold water, chilling, and the heat gradually increases. And there's a little discomfort because it's getting a little warm, but not enough to, to flight or flee. And then a little bit more heat and the same thing. But then eventually the pot starts boiling and the frog is, 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 is too hot, but wants to leave. But he's used so much energy and resources just trying to survive in the discomfort of the slightly warm that then he can't even leave. And, you know, and that chronic stress that just makes you not be able to function, whether it's being untrainable or it's being, um, you know, um, too aroused or whatever it is, that chronic stress that goes over and over. We know now from humans, it causes autoimmune diseases. Yes. It causes cancer. I mean, there is so much study about this constant stress. And unfortunately as humans, we, and this is one of my big soapboxes, what I'll try not to get on right now of dogs are not robots and they are all in just as individuals. So just as much as um, Judy and I are Caucasian women. We have blonde hair. You know, we have a lot of similarities. We're dog trainers. We are very individuals. Like we are not exactly the same and we shouldn't be treated exactly the same. We shouldn't be expected to respond. Our history, our learning is different. And that's how, even whether it's the same breed, whatever breed it is, every single one in that breed is still an individual. And we have to look at that and, and some can tolerate more stress than others. Some need to go slower, but that is where that, that chronic stress could, people just assume, well, my other dog could handle all of this. Why can't this one? And you could actually be doing a disservice when you're not paying attention to that, that body language that's right. saying, Hey, I'm, I can't do this right now. Yeah. I like, I like what you're saying there, Shannon, because that chronic stress is the opposite of building resilience. Exactly. Resilience is about when the animal can recover from the startling event. That's when you're building resilience. If the animal cannot find resolution or recovery, that's when you're, that's chronic stress. So those are the two differences. So really. For sure. And it all goes together. And what would you say, like the difference between more of a passive or an activated kind of arousal in a dog? Like, what is that? You know, cause because there is both of those when they're um, arousal, but more is passive and more is activated. What do you mean when you talk about that? Yeah. So when I'm assessing a puppy, it's one of the things that I want to tell the breeder, does this puppy have two sides to him? So when I'm asking a puppy in an unfamiliar environment with an unfamiliar person that shows passivity, but in a familiar environment can show more social behaviors. Now I know that this dog has two sides to him. In some settings, you can have a dog who shows passive behavior, but that same dog in another familiar setting with a support system, like his mom with him, can show a much more confident, activated arousal. 
So I think it's important that we know who the dog is in front of us. Is it 100% passive? Is it, does it have two sides? And when I say two sides, that means that sometimes in some settings, the pendulum swings left and the dog leans away or maybe is hiding and, and yielding space. But in other settings, that dog's barking at the window going, no, you can't come in here. So mm -hmm. there are dogs that swing both ways. There are also dogs, we use the term, they're just really well-balanced. We think of a service dog. They're not emotional. Nothing really upsets them. They don't slide far to passivity and they don't slide far to activation. They're just in this nice little bubble and they hear something and they turn their head or cock an ear to it and say, yep, I see that. No big deal. I'm not worried. So when we think about passive versus active, I think it's really helpful for owners to understand, is your dog all passive in all settings? Is it all activation in unfamiliar and familiar settings? Or does your dog's pendulum swing from left, you know, from passivity to active in different settings. And I, that's really important for people to know for their training plan. For sure. I mean, I see it all the time, you know, very common one as I'll have a dog who doesn't like strangers or other dogs on walks or something. And then I also ask, well, how are they in the vet hospital? And they'll go, oh, well, they're really good. And I'm like, well, are they actually really good? Or are they just shutting down and in freeze? Correct. So in our human world, we're like, oh, they're awesome. But that means inside what's happening in their brain and their body, they're still having cortisol, adrenaline response. They're just shutting down rather than being, you know, activated. And, and that's where it is important to know. And I love what you said. And this is something I say to my clients all the time. And actually they're repeat, some of my long-term clients repeat it back to me, train the dog that's in front of you, train the dog that's in front of you. So like today I might have the really high energy dog. So I need to keep their focus. But tomorrow I might need to like motivate them to want to do what I'm doing. And I tell my clients, we all have good days, bad days. I have some days, just the other day, I told my assistant, I said, my brain is broken today. So I, I had popcorn thoughts that were all over the place. Like I couldn't stay focused, but I also had so much to do on my plate that I was trying to get through. And I just was like, I just need to try to really, I had to work really hard to stay focused on one thing or at a time because it's so many things on my plate. Then I can have other days where I can sit at my computer for hours and be tunnel vision. And it's just the way that whatever's happening in my environment at the time makes me who I am. So popcorn brain Shannon and all over the place, broken brain Shannon was not going to be able to learn a new skill on that day, but focus Shannon is ready to learn a new skill. And, um, I have learned over my, my many years, these on this planet of like, and learning how to improve my own life is what is my brain capable of in that moment? So if it's the end of the day, I know I can't start a hard thinking project because I've been working. So I know if I have something I have to really focus on, I'm better to do it before noon. You know, when I have my brain clear, I could teach agility and puppy class until midnight though, because that is something I've done. It's a routine doesn't cause me to have to think too much beyond what I'm dealing with right in front of me. But if I'm learning a new skill, don't ask me to start that eight o'clock at night because my brain is shutting down by then. You know, if I have a really tired day, then I'm not going to be able to do a lot of physical stuff. But if I had a good rest, I could go and do a lot of physical stuff. We all have days that are different. And so do our dogs and environment matters. So we have to remember all of that with whichever way they go. I think that's an important that I don't think people always realize, which is why it's on my new soapbox, which like I said, I'm trying to not get on at this point. So, but it is, I think really looking at these dogs and if we can get people to pay attention to these more individualists, then 
this is how you train a dog or this is how I train my other dog. Yes. It's important. So, and a lot of these, like I was just saying in puppy class, we see a lot of this and you're probably the same as me. I've been doing puppy class for so many years that it's pretty much, if I have an eight week old puppy that comes to my puppy class, I'm like, oh boy, you know, like it's a handful that are like, you're going to never be okay in our world. You're probably going to need medication and you're on an uphill battle for starting at birth. Then you have the others that you see and you're like, oh, you're going to be the most resilient dog. Like a bomb could blow up and you will never care unless you have some major trauma happen in your life. You're going to be an easy dog. And then you have, you know, everything in between, you know, so what are some things that people could do when they get a puppy and maybe they realize, oh my gosh, I got that puppy who's jumping up and biting and nip and always trying to grab me. What are some things that you recommend since you work with so many high arousal dogs for these puppies to be able to at least maybe start off a little bit better? Yeah. My all time favorite behavior to teach any puppy, certainly the highly aroused ones is to learn to relax. And this is a hard behavior to have the idea of teaching a puppy to relax in this, in a quiet room, let's say you've just freed the puppy in, you've had a nice walk with the puppy, you've got them to settle, okay, go to your mat, lay down, and you're going to reward in the familiar home, you know, a familiar setting like your home. Teaching a puppy to relax on their mat in any setting is an amazing skill. I personally use Suzanne Clothier mm -hmm. because she mim has the puppy mimic her breathing, so it's more about sitting with the puppy on a short leash, breathing and helping mm -hmm. the puppy lower their arousal. Why I think this works so well, if your puppy mirrors your energy, and we know that many puppies do, mm -hmm. if you have a puppy that's mirroring your energy, then you want to lower your own arousal. You want to breathe and that puppy can mirror you and that puppy can come back down. So in one setting, we have a puppy who we're going to put you on a leash. We're going to ask you to go to your mat. You know, when you go to your mat, good things happen. Then we're going to, once that becomes strong, we take that mat to the vets. We take mm -hmm. that mat in a car. We take that mat to the park. Let me think about taking that puppy who's going to become activated. And I would take them to the park, but I'm not going to walk them through the park and sensitize them. I'm going to throw their mat out. And they're like, I know this game and I'm going to lay on my mat. And mm -hmm. the puppy just watches the world go by mm -hmm. and you randomly toss treats. So I think for, for whether it's the nervous dog, I, for, the, for the activated dog, I love mat work and then teaching them to relax in mm -hmm. at a distance in many different settings. And if the dog becomes aroused, that's okay. We try to set them up for success, but you may have to remove that puppy. If I have that puppy who's more passive, I'm going to add another dog. I really feel strongly that if I have a dog that's unsure about different settings, I'm going to add a dog because I think dogs can really support other dogs, sometimes more than humans. So with that oh, passive sure. dog, I may have both dogs laying on a mat together. And with the pa with the passive dog can feed off of the energy of the confident dog who already knows the skill, who already knows that it's in a relaxed state and using that confident dog to support the passive dog. I, I like to do that in those settings. Oh, do other dogs teach each other good and bad. I mean, that is actually a little off subject, but it's kind of the same. I, Cause again, I do lots of puppy classes and you know, the puppies come and they play and I'm monitoring their play every week. And I'll have a puppy who all of a sudden is a little more agitated and more high aroused when it's play session. And a lot of times I will stop and say, okay, this, especially if it's pretty extreme, then I come to find out they're like, oh yeah, well they play really rough with my 
dog at home or my dog at home is aggressive towards him or other right. people, or he played with my aunt and uncle's dog for a week or whatever. And in that short period of time, they learn, they pick up that emotional state. They pick up that response yeah. to that emotional state. Yeah. And I have to tell those people, you need to stop. Like they can only have healthy socialization situations yeah. right now because just like if I had one puppy who, when she was ready to go to a dog park, got ambushed by two shepherds. She was a little cocker spaniel. Mm. She's almost three now. And I'm still having to help her not be reactive to dogs that come straight into her face, like come yeah. up to her fast because it's that trauma. She yes. was had trauma. And just like humans who have trauma and PTSD and all of those things, sure. that makes a big difference. And when you're living, I had one dog puppy years ago, little pity, he was sweet. And he, I couldn't even let him by the end of puppy class play at all during the playtime. Cause every time a dog came near him, he tried to pin him and he was a big pity put as a puppy. Mm -hmm. And they said, Oh, well, all three of our dogs fight all the other ones fight all the time. Oh, no. And I was all your puppy. This puppy can't be around those dogs then. Right. And and later I saw him walking around and he's dangerous now. Yeah. And it's sad because he didn't start off that way, but he yeah. learned from another puppy. Just like I like having my dogs who are the social dogs that are like, here, let's just learn how to chill out in the backyard or, or chill out and relax because they do teach each other. And well, they teach each other the wrong ways too, but yeah. dogs can teach each other better than we ever could think. They speak the same language. They understand each other. Just like we can teach each other better than like someone from a different culture. We might have like somebody's from Austria, you know, or Germany, and they're just a different temper. Like you have to remember, they're not yelling at you. It's just the way that their voices are and their languages. Right. And so sometimes we have a hard time learning from somebody that's not from our same culture. Doesn't mean it's wrong or right. It's just different. But these right. puppies are learning from each other and they learn bad behaviors, you know, yeah. Just like kids that grow up with problem kids, you know, that are, they will be more likely to mimic that behavior. And that's such an important, if you can use it in that right way of a good example, and then being cautious of that bad example, because yeah. they do each other. Social learning is always happening. And I think people really need to realize you need to keep your puppies safe. I have a two-year-old shepherd and a four-year-old shepherd. They love all dogs. They greet every dog with a, hey, how are you? They've never been attacked. Mm -hmm. I live in Maine with beautiful beaches. I don't take them to the beach. Yes. I don't take them to the open fields unless I know that nobody's going to be there. They've never had a scary situation. Yes. I think we really need to, even though we live in certain areas where it's real convenient to take them to the dog park, just know that if your dog is super resilient, they might be able to get attacked and still be able to come out the other end okay. But if they're not beautifully resilient, one attack can really change them for a long time. And they're so over their whole life, potentially. I mean, especially yes. if you don't do heavy intervention. And I mean, sometimes it can lead to medications that they need just sure. to be able to walk out their door because all of us just trauma is still, we're still learning so much about trauma in humans and then True. dogs are even longer. So it's just that trauma response is such a an important thing. So yeah, and and I think that those dogs who get traumatized, some of them stay social, but mm -hmm. they lack social confidence in the greeting, and that's what that conflicted barking and backing way becomes. They're like right. I think I want to greet, but I've had a negative situation, so we need to build the social confidence. 
for so sure. I, I, many of the reactive dogs I see were social and they still are, but they're now their confidence has dropped. And so we have to work on that social confidence piece. So fascinating. We could talk forever and ever. Judy has a webinar that we'll put a link in for so you guys can link to it. She has great resources. So, and if you're in Maine, you know, you could work with her um, or if you're on that side of the country, you know, you can do work with her. Super great information that we just need to remember for all of our dogs. And that's what the, the podcast here is for, is to give people bite-sized information that they might say, oh, this is my puppy or my dog. That's why I'm having problems. And then we can help fix them, you know, wherever you can go. So thank you, Judy, so much for joining us today. It was awesome to catch up and we could talk dog yes. all day long. But um, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun to talk to you, Shannon. Super great to see you. So all of you who are listening, check out Judy's, her page. It'll all be in the the links here. So you'll be able to see more if you're, if you're interested. And thank you, Judy, so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.